you would keep out your bulletin with those scripture readings or have your Bible open to Luke 24, that will help you as we think together about these things. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, superintending the the recording of these events, um, for superintending the ones who wrote these things down so that they are your words, um, breathed out by God, and then preserved for us for centuries and centuries and centuries so that now we can read the eyewitness testimony of these folks and know that Jesus is alive. I pray that by your Spirit you would open our minds to understand the Scriptures, that you would open our eyes so that we might see Jesus on the pages of your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What difference does the resurrection story make for your story and mine? That's what I want to consider this morning. I brought with me um, some books from my high school days. So these are ancient. They had just started making books with binding and stopped making scrolls when I was in high school. So, uh, and see, that it's falling apart. I have here uh, the, the Hobbit by Tolkien. I've got uh, the three volumes of the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, then, I don't know what got into me, but when I was in high school, I decided to read the Cimmerillion, which is the creation account of Middle Earth. (laughs) They didn't have really good video games back then, so I read books. Um, We had Atari. Um, Sorry. And then... uh, One day, I was at a yard sale, um, garage sale, and I found this cool little book, The Complete Guide to Middle Earth, From the Hobbit to the Cimmerillion. So what I've got in these five novels over here, these five books, I've got most of the story that Tolkien told about Middle Earth. And then in this little paperback, I've got kind of um, some summarized, uh, synthesized, systematized thoughts about characters and places and events that happened in this story. And uh, so these five books helped me to love the story of Middle Earth. Uh, This little book helped me to learn that story a little better. But the one book that's missing that doesn't exist, and if you find it, let me know, or maybe not, Uh, where's the book that tells me how to live in Middle Earth? Where's the book that tells me how to live in Tolkien's story? Now, there are some folks that if you've ever gone to, if you went to the opening night of the Tolkien films, you know, the Hobbit movies or the Lord of the Rings movies, you might think that some people had found those books. You know, that told them how to live in the story that Tolkien wrote. Um, Because some people were dressed as hobbits, some people were dressed as Gandalf. uh... Now, 
honestly, what do we think of those people? We look at them, and maybe some of you were there. It's okay. Maybe, maybe some of you dress that way. <clears throat> uh, but typically, we look at those folks and go, ooh, steer clear of that one. They're crazy. Because there are some people who you might think really believe that that story is true and that they can live in it. Someone told me the other day about a friend of theirs who has uh, learned how to speak Elvish. Why? Um, So there are folks who really believe they can live in the story that Tolkien told. We think they're crazy. But you know what? There are people who think that we're crazy for believing we can live in this story that we just heard read. The resurrection story. Is it crazy? I want us to, to think about it this morning. Uh, what does it mean for our story to get caught up in the resurrection story? And so I want us to stop for just a minute and let's press pause on all the busyness of this weekend. Let's set aside the thoughts of Cadbury eggs and chocolate bunnies and honey-baked ham and Easter dresses and family photos and family feuds, whatever is coming up next. (laughs) Right? And I want us to think about, um, I want to use some of the words that were used to describe the disciples. There's three scenarios in Luke 24. There's the empty tomb, there's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then back in Jerusalem in probably the upper room where Jesus appeared. In each of those scenarios, the disciples are described with certain words. And I want to ask you if these words could describe you today. These were the words that described the disciples on the first Easter Sunday. Let's see if you can relate to them on this Easter Sunday. Verse 4 says, The women were perplexed. What are you perplexed about lately? What's going on in your life that causes you to be at a loss? That's what that word means, perplexed or anxiously confused. Verse 17, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, it was said that they stopped and they looked sad. What is causing your face to look sad lately? What's causing you to be a bit gloomy or sullen? It's said that those two were, dis- were talking and discussing together. They were having a conversation about the events that had been happening in their life. And I, I ask you, what are, what are the hard things that are going on in your life about which you are talking and discussing with your friends, your family, your spouse? What troublesome, worrisome things are you rehashing over and over again just trying to figure out what's going on? What part of your story are you trying to make sense of? In verse 21, uh, Cleopas said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What? Have you hoped in that has failed you lately? 
What have you hoped for that you have yet to receive? In what or whom have you lost your hope? Both verses 5 and 37 describe the disciples as frightened. They were frightened at a supernatural event that took place. One, the appearance of angels. The other, the appearance of Jesus. So I ask you, what has God done or allowed in your life lately that has you scared? That has you frightened? In verse 38, Jesus asked the disciples, why are you troubled? And that word trouble means to be shaken, stirred, unsettled. And so I'm asking you this morning, what is going on in your story that has you troubled or unsettled? And then finally, Jesus asked them in verse 38, why do doubts arise in your hearts? And I'm asking you, What doubts are rising up in your heart lately? Where are you struggling to believe God and God's Word and God's promises? In what part of your story are you becoming slow of heart to believe? Where are you having a difficult time believing all that the Bible says about the reality of God, of Jesus, and of God's love for you? Are the events in your story causing you to doubt the story? Causing you to wonder whether it's true or real or or even worth believing? This is what was happening to the disciples that first Resurrection Sunday. They were weighed down with grief and clouded with confusion. And when the women came and told them what the angels had told them, this is what the the disciples of Jesus, the 11 at that point, said, that's just an idle tale. And they did not believe them. I'm asking us this morning, do we believe that this resurrection story is just an idle tale? Or is it the story, the true story? Because if it is the true story, it makes a difference. And we need to decide whether we believe it or not. Because if this is a true story, then it is the story of your life and my life and the story of the universe. If you look on the front of your bulletin, I I put this quote from Michael Horton. He says, If God exists, then he is the author of the story that includes you. The gospel, the good news that the Christian faith proclaims, is either true or false. But it cannot be walled off into a safe room of cuddly bears and the favorite blanket of childhood. Or bunnies and eggs. Its validity does not depend on how well it works for you. How it makes your life more meaningful. Or how it gives you moral direction and inspirational motivation. No, instead, the gospel is a very particular claim based on events that happened in datable history with significance for the entire cosmos. If the resurrection is true, then it has significance for your story and mine. C.S. Lewis once argued that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. 
And if true, it is of infinite importance. What it can never be is moderately important. And so we find these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is what I want to focus on this morning, wrestling with this, trying to figure out. They've just heard that Jesus was alive, reports of Jesus being resurrected. But, but you can tell they're struggling with, is that, a, is that a true story? Really? I mean, considering all that's taken place so far, they're really struggling with it. And so when Jesus finds them, their hearts are sad. But by the time they get to Emmaus at supper time, their hearts are burning, they said. What happened in between? These sad, sullen, downcast hearts and these burning, flaming, run back and tell the others hearts. Well, what happened was Jesus. (laughs) And so... Let's look for a few minutes of what Jesus did. And and I love this story because I love how how he gently handled their troubled hearts. Because it's instructive to how he handles yours and mine. So look at what he did. First of all, in verse 15, it says, He drew near them and went with them. Jesus draws near to troubled hearts. He walked with them. He came alongside them. He stepped into the world, and and he listened to them for a while before he said anything. Jesus did this for you and for me in his incarnation. Incarnation. Carne means meat, flesh. Jesus came, God, in the flesh. John 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, Jesus knows what it means to be human. He has walked with us. Because of his great love for us, God the Father sent God the Son to take on human flesh. He became like us. He suffered hunger, poverty, rejection by his family and friends. He was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect he was tempted, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus draws near to troubled hearts. So I want you to know this morning that Jesus is willing to draw near to yours. And so listen to him as he walks alongside you and listens to your heart, listens to your doubts, listens to your fears, listens to your worries. He's listening to you. Now be willing to listen to him. Because the next thing Jesus did for these disciples was he not only drew near, drew near to them, he drew out their hearts. He drew out their troubled hearts with questions. He paid attention to their story. He listened to their hopes and fears and desires as he walked along them. And then he started talking. And he kind of poked around in their story a little bit and asked them curious questions. He said in verse 17, What is this conversation that you're holding? What are you debating about? And they told him, Are you the the only one who hasn't been around and knows what's going on in Jerusalem these days? (laughs) Ironic. And then I love what he says in verse 19. 
to them, the question he asks. He says, what things? (laughs) You see, he wanted to hear from them what they were concerned about. What's going on? What things? The God who knows everything wants to know what things? His, his, he wasn't trying to get information. He was digging around in their hearts. And this is what he discovered and what I think they discovered as he asked them questions. In verse 21, they said, we had hoped that Jesus of Nazareth was the one who would redeem Israel. Jesus exposed their misplaced hope because Jesus was not the Savior they hoped he would be. But then he also exposed their misplaced faith. He said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Jesus was not only the Savior, not only not the Savior they hoped he would be, he was not the Savior they believed he should be. These were Jewish people. They expected their Messiah to come with pomp and power and to make their enemies his footstool as he reclaimed the throne of David and established the Messianic kingdom. All the prophecies promised this, right? This is what they were expecting. This is what they were hoping. That's the Messiah they believed he should be. And on Palm Sunday, it looked like that was going to come true. But by Friday and Saturday, it became clear that this probably wasn't the Messiah that we hoped. And besides, to be hung on a tree in Old Testament law was to, was to be cursed by God. So not only was he not the Christ, he was cursed by God. Jesus was drawing out their misplaced hope and their misplaced faith and exposing their hearts and What about you and me? He wants to do the same for us. Has Jesus been exposing your misplaced hopes, your misplaced faith? Are you disappointed with Jesus because he's not turned out to be the Savior you hoped he would be or that you believe he should be? Is he not running your life the way you hoped he would? So Jesus drew near to them. He drew out their troubled hearts. And then finally, he he drew connections between their troubled story and the true story. He drew connections between their troubled story and the true story, and he drew them up into the larger story that makes sense of every other small story. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken Don't imagine him saying this angrily. I imagine him saying this with a broken heart. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's a seven-mile sermon that I would love to have a copy of. Jesus taught them through the entire Old Testament everything concerning him. 
and he, he did this. He addressed their heads and he addressed their hearts. Because when he said, oh, foolish ones, that word foolish uh, literally means without mind, without understanding. And so he did address the mind. He did address their, their understanding by drawing their attention to the Old Testament teaching about a suffering Savior. He had to correct their understanding because it was wrong. He said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? They were looking for a Christ of glory, not a Savior that suffers. And I imagine maybe Jesus went back all the way to Genesis 3.15 where that promise that there would be one who would come, the seed of the woman, one who would come and one day crush the head of the serpent. But had they forgotten that it also says that when he crushes the head of the serpent, the serpent will strike his heel? This was a suffering conqueror. Had they forgotten the picture of the Savior that um, the sacrificial sacrificial system and the Passover lamb showed that yes, there is a Savior, but he's going to have to shed blood to save. He's a suffering Savior. Had they forgotten the prophecy concerning the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about this Messiah. But it says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was going to be a suffering Savior. Had they forgotten this? Jesus had to correct their understanding. And I wonder if maybe Jesus was trying to show them that though, although there are troubles in their world, big bad Rome was oppressing them, Um, but the troubles that trouble God most are the troubles in their hearts. Yes, the Messiah would one day come to conquer all kingdoms, but first he came to conquer the kingdom of darkness that had taken up residence in their hearts. The Christ had to suffer in order to do something about sin. I need my understanding of what Jesus came to do for me to be corrected. I've got troubles in my world, certainly. But the troubles that should trouble me most and trouble God most are in my heart. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I don't want anyone to be king but me. And Jesus came to save me from my greatest trouble, my sin. One day he'll save me from all the other troubles. So he addressed, he addressed their head, but he also addressed their hearts because he said they were slow of heart to believe. And, and I think he addressed their hearts by drawing them to himself as the living Lord of history. Let me explain what I mean. Remember, he went through the entire Old Testament and interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. He was teaching them that the story, and thus all of history, was about him. He's the living Lord of history, including theirs. And I 
again, if only we could have been there to hear that sermon. Um, I can't imagine what that would have been like, but uh, Tim Keller gives a great summary that I'd like to share with you of helping us see Jesus through the entire story of the Bible. This is what Keller says. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is credited to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out for our acquittal, not for condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can say to God, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved so we, like Jacob, would only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly palace, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He goes on to say, he is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the lamb, the light, the bread. You see, the Bible is not about you or me. It's about Jesus. Jesus said, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. That's what he came to do. And then to enter his glory. And this is the part they were missing. He had risen and entered glory. His glorious state. And and Jesus had been teaching this to the disciples, that he would suffer, then rise, suffer, then rise. And three times in Luke 24, that's referenced. The angels said, Don't you remember what he told you? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then Jesus said, Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Three times in this this chapter, they're reminded, 
Yes, he should suffer. And he will rise again. Jesus had been teaching them that. That it's the cross, then the crown. And we know that the disciples, as they were hearing him teach from the scriptures, were beginning to see that maybe the women's report was believable after all, because they said later, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? There was a burning belief beginning to happen. And I want you to notice that they were beginning to burn with believing hearts, not because they had recognized the risen Jesus standing in front of them. They still hadn't seen who he really was yet. They began to burn with believing hearts because they had recognized that Jesus fit the description of the suffering Savior in the Scriptures. Their sad and slow-to-believe hearts became burning hearts by seeing Jesus for who he is in the Bible, not in front of their face. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, oh, you're having a hard time believing that I'm the Messiah. Here I am. No, he did a Bible study with them. He said, if you want to see who I really am, read this. Understand this. So after Jesus showed himself in the book, he did then show himself in his body. Because see, before seeing was believing, believing was seeing. And now what about us? No, we cannot see Jesus physically and bodily right now. One day we will, but for now we see Jesus in the story and in the supper. And this is how I want us to finish. We see Jesus, we see the risen Jesus when he's proclaimed in the story told in this book. But you're going to say, now wait a minute. Those two folks on the road to Emmaus, they had Jesus teaching them the story. All we got is you. Um, if I had Jesus teaching me the story, I'd probably believe it too. Well, you do have Jesus teaching you the story. It's called the, no, uh, the New Testament. Luke tells us in, in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus spent 40 days with the apostles between his resurrection and his ascension presenting himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 40-day seminary class with the, with the apostles before he ascended. And so then, in Acts chapter 2, we learned that the early church, those thousands that came to believe that Jesus is the risen Messiah, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching about Jesus. They had devoted themselves not only to what the Old Testament said about Jesus, but to what the apostles had learned from Jesus those stories meant. And so the New Testament becomes like my little complete guide to Middle Earth. It helps us learn the story of Jesus. And those letters that we have in the New Testament, um, I think are just the, the summary of what Jesus taught the disciples about himself. So, 
you do have Jesus telling you his story. It's in this book. You do have eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And I just want to say, I'll stop here. I don't have time this morning to go into all the arguments for why um, the resurrection is a, is a credible thing for you to believe. That is a, a historical event. Um, but I, I want to invite you to explore that because that's where it starts. If you have doubts about any of the rest of the Bible, start with, did Jesus really rise from the dead or not? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, as he said he did, as he said he would, then you have to go back and say, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. He did rise from the dead. That means everything he says can be trusted. He just said that the whole Old Testament is about him. And just keep moving back. The linchpin then is, do you believe he rose from the dead? Because if he did, then everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus said, the Bible taught, is true. And it's your story, not just a story. Um, in order to help you, on the back table back there, I've put, I don't know, 60 or so copies of this little, if you want to kind of get an overview of the whole Bible in a hundred readings that are not very long, you can get from Genesis to Revelation. It's sitting back there on the table uh, if you want to grab one on your way out. And then I want to recommend two other resources to you real quick. My favorite book, besides the Bible, of course, but one of my favorite books that kind of explains the whole Bible and how it all fits together is this one with a very unattractive cover, but it's called uh, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. So if you Google God's Big Picture, you'll find it. I ordered a few copies to give away, but they didn't get here in time. But this is a great book. Another one I would recommend that I did get a few copies to give away is called The Story of Reality, uh, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. Here's a quote from this in your program. And I just want to invite you, if, if you're here this morning, you're kind of a skeptic, and you're kind of like, I don't know about this whole Jesus rising from the dead thing, the whole Bible, all that religious mumbo jump. If you're that, but you're curious, and you kind of like to know more, come up here, I'll give you this book free, or, you know, meet me in the hall if you don't want to be seen. But I'll give you one of these. Um, great little book. But I, I encourage you, go study it. Go study it. The other, so we, we see the risen Jesus in the story, and that's how he intended for us to see him. We will see him one day in his body. Right now we see him in the Bible. And the other way we see him is in the supper that we're about to enjoy together. Remember that night in Emmaus? They invited him to stay for dinner. Interesting, he became the host that was <laughs> serving the bread. And um, when he, it says, uh, Luke says, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Those are the exact same four actions that the gospel writers say that Jesus did when he fed the 5,000 and when he served the Lord's Supper 
in the upper room the night before he was crucified. Same words. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. And Luke tells us that as soon as he did that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Um, Ever since those days, I don't think he was having a communion service right there. He was just serving the bread. But Luke intentionally uses those same words. And I, I think that uh, one of the other things that the apostles, uh, that the early church devoted themselves to was the breaking of the bread. They devoted themselves to the meal, to this supper. Because, as Paul said, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. And his death was made real and uh, helpful by his resurrection. So, I think Jesus wants to address your heart this morning. Um, And he wants to show you that the story is about him. Um, He wants you to know that the troubles in your heart are no match for him. The sin that's in your heart is no match for him. Jesus was raised from the dead as proof that his purchase on the cross works for us. And one day, the resurrection shows us the troubles in our world will all be resolved. Because Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead, he is the first fruits, the promise that we too will be raised. We are guaranteed to share life with him in our own resurrected bodies, in a renewed heaven and a new earth where all wrongs will be made right, all injustices will meet justice, where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sadness. And as I believe Tolkien said, where everything sad will come untrue. How do you live in the resurrection story? Jesus said the biggest problem those disciples had was they were slow of heart to believe. You live in the resurrection story by repenting and turning away from your unbelief and turning to the resurrected Christ and saying, I believe you're alive and I believe that your death paid for my sin. And now I'm going to follow you as the Lord of my life, the Lord of history, the Lord of everything. Your story makes my story make sense. And I'm going to follow you. So repent of your unbelief. Believe Jesus is the risen Savior. And follow him. Follow him as the one who loves you and gave himself for you. And now... Let's enjoy together this meal and ask and pray that God would show us himself in this bread and in this cup.